My name is Anthony P. Richards. I'm a pastor and I started this podcast channel to equip, encourage, inspire and challenge you to passionately live to your potential in Christ through the Word of God. For more information, you can go to my YouTube channel, Anthony P. Richards. Thank you for joining us as we continue another day on our journey through the Word of God. And today we're continuing through Matthew chapter 27, and we're going to be looking at verses 38 to 49 today, which is where Jesus is mocked on the cross. And uh, so thank you for joining me. If you haven't had a chance to subscribe to my channel, uh, or to the podcast channel where you're listening to this, or Instagram, please do that. Share this as much as you can. Uh, Let's get the message of Jesus Christ in the Word of God out to as many people as possible. Let's read from verse 38. Then the two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and another on the left. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, You who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, The chief priests also mocking with the scribes and elders said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. And even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. Jesus stood in the center of the two robbers. He stood in the center of the human race. He was mocked as if he was a criminal. He was rejected as if he was a criminal. And the criminals themselves mocked him. The the Jewish people placed him between these two, Adam Clark says, perhaps to intimate that he was the worst felon of the three criminals. Interestingly enough, in Luke chapter 23, we read that one of the robbers actually ended up ends up repenting on the cross and trust Jesus. And, and ends up having his eternity secure, and the other one does not. Isn't that amazing? Imagine that that whoever that other robber was deserved to be there, knew he deserved to be there. He even, he even said, listen, we've done wrong things. This guy's done nothing wrong. He really is the king. And what an amazing thing for that man to have an eternity secure with his heavenly father, saved in the last few hours of his life by being crucified alongside Jesus. And you've got all these people who are walking around Jesus and they're, they're wagging their heads and they're blaspheming. Um, there was no honour there for Jesus. There was just uh, taunts and sneers. Save yourself if you're the son of God, you know. Um, he would have been in such immense physical pain at this time. And he's being mocked. It's horrible. You know, you know when you're going through a really hard, tough time in life, the last thing you want is anybody to make fun of you at that time. Like, you just can't handle it. Jesus' most wanted words were ones of just pity and kindness, just maybe a look of kindness from somebody. But they that passed by him reviled him, wagging their heads. Uh, they mocked him. They mocked him for who he really was. He really was a saviour. He really was a king. He really was somebody who trusted in God. He really was the son of God. And and they acted as if Jesus did what they said. Like if, if he had have come off the cross, then they would all of a sudden believe him. 
But it was precisely because he didn't do that and he did not save himself was the whole reason why he was going to be able to save them and you and me. David Guzik says this. I love this quote. Love kept Jesus on the cross, not nails. (laughs) I love that. Uh, Jesus did something far greater than just coming off the cross. He actually rose from the dead. But even when he rose from the dead, they still didn't want to believe it. So as if they would have believed him if he had hopped off the cross. Jesus showed us how we should react to a world that mocks us and that scorns us and doesn't regard us at all or what we believe in. Spurgeon said this, scorn? Let us scorn, scorn. (laughs) Does the world laugh at us? Let us laugh at the world's laughter and say to it, dost thou despise us? It is not one half as much as we despise thee. Our fathers despise thy sword, O world, thy dungeons, thy racks, thy gibbets, thy stakes, and dost thou think that we shall tremble at thy scoffs and jeers? You, you, you can't hurt us. That was the point Spurgeon was making. And the peak of God's love for man was shown in Jesus enduring this pain for our salvation. But it was also the peak of man's hatred for God because God comes to earth and this is what man does to him. And Jesus suffers this alone outside the city gates, cut off from the community so that we could be joined to his community. And so that our experience of isolation can be redeemed and made into opportunities of fellowship with him. And then we get to a very interesting time in the next few verses. Verse 45. Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. Now, this is about 12 o'clock midday till 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And it's much longer than any eclipse could possibly have ever lasted for. Uh, It wasn't the entire time that Jesus was on the cross because he was on the cross from about 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. So this is from 12 noon. So it's the second half, if you like. And uh, according to Mark chapter 15, we can surmise that Jesus was on that cross for about six hours. The first three hours, total normal daylight so that everybody could see that it was Jesus on the cross and it wasn't a replacement, it wasn't an imposter, it was really him. And then the last three hours in darkness. Now, it happened during Passover. Passover took place during the full moon. You can't have an eclipse during a full moon. For a natural eclipse of the sun, that is. A natural eclipse of the sun. Now, the darkness that came over the earth, I believe, was showing the agony of all creation in the Creator's suffering. Spurgeon said this, The darkness is the symbol of the wrath of God which fell on those who slew his only begotten son. God was angry and his frown removed the light of day. This symbol 
also tells us what the Lord Jesus Christ endured. The darkness outside of him was the figure of the darkness that was now within him. In Gethsemane, a thick darkness fell upon our Lord's spirit. Uh, Now, there are other writers, apart from Bible writers, who wrote about this three hours of darkness. Uh, Origen wrote about it. Eusebius quoted words himself from a Roman historian whose name was Phlegon. Uh, in which he made mention of this incredibly extraordinary solar eclipse, he called it, as well as an earthquake about the time of the crucifixion. Fliegen actually wrote, In the fourth year of the 202nd Olympiad, there was an extraordinary eclipse of the sun. At the sixth hour, the day turned into dark night, so that the stars in heaven were seen and there was an earthquake. Um all he could do was make of it was uh, it's a really, really long solar eclipse. That was the best he could come up with. So then we move on to verse 46. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood there when they first heard that said, this man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed, offered it to him to drink. And the rest said, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come and save him. Jesus quotes Psalm 22. My God, my God. And in that he declared his fulfillment of the prophecy in Psalm 22. In its full agony and exaltation because Psalm 22 goes on to say you have answered me I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation I will praise you now when Jesus cried out on the cross France points out that this was the only time in the synoptic gospels of Matthew Mark and Luke where Jesus addresses God and doesn't call him father but says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus had known incredible emotional and physical pain up until this point, but he had never known up until now spiritual separation from his father. At this point, he experiences something that he's never experienced before, which is there is this sense that he has been forsaken by his father at the moment. And he didn't know it was a foreign feeling. He'd never felt it before. And this is when the holy transaction takes place, where God the Father regards God the Son as if he were a sinner. The Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Yet Jesus doesn't only endure the withdrawal of being connected to his Father, but also the outpouring of the Father's wrath upon him as a substitute for the entire sinfulness of humanity. And as horrible as this all was, it was all about fulfilling God's plan of redemption, which is why Isaiah said in Isaiah 53, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him, the Christ. Now, at the same time, um, we can't say that the separation between God the Father and God the Son was 100%. There was a spiritual disconnection. 
But 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself at the cross. So Spurgeon said this, I even venture to say that if it had been possible for God's love towards his son to be increased, he would have delighted in him more when he was standing as the suffering representative of his chosen people than ever he had delighted in him before. Because God the Father saw God the Son reconciling the world back to himself. And Jesus says, why have you forsaken me? The agony of that cry is incredibly significant because it's so often today rarely grieves mankind or any man or woman to be separated from God. Um, yet this is the true agony of what Jesus experienced on the cross. And what's amazing is that at the time that he dies, the veil in the temple is torn in two. Uh, what a what an amazing understanding for us, a visible, physical representation of what was happening on the cross. God the Father lays upon the Son all the guilt and the wrath of the sin of the world. Jesus bears it perfectly, becomes the perfect atoning sacrifice, totally satisfying the wrath of God, which was the only reason why the veil could be torn in the first place so that the promise of the Holy Spirit could be fulfilled. Jewish people have been waiting for hundreds of years for the promise. Jesus fulfills it. But he doesn't just fulfill it to the Jewish people, he fulfills it to the Jews and the Gentiles. And this was, as a result of Jesus' spiritual suffering on the cross, the the act of being judged for sin in our place. And that's what actually Jesus was dreading on the cross when he thought about the garden, about it in the Garden of Gethsemane. This was the cup, the cup of God's righteous wrath that he trembled at drinking in Luke chapter 22, Psalm 75, Isaiah 51, Jeremiah 25. And on the cross, Jesus became an enemy of God who was judged. He was forced to drink the cup of his father's fury and he did it so you and I wouldn't have to drink it. Isaiah 53 puts it very powerfully. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Spurgeon said this, His father now dried up that sacred stream of peaceful communion and loving fellowship which had flowed hitherto throughout his whole earthly life. We lose but drops when we lose our joyful experience of heavenly fellowship, and yet the loss is killing. But to our Lord Jesus Christ, the sea was dried up. I mean his sea of fellowship with the infinite God. We can imagine the answer to Jesus' question. Why have you forsaken me? 
Spurgeon goes on to say this, Because, my son, you have chosen to stand in the place of guilty sinners. You, who have never known sin, have made the infinite sacrifice to become sin and receive my just wrath upon sin and sinners. You do this because of your great love and because of my great love. Then the father might give the son a glimpse of his reward, this righteously robed multitude of his people on heaven's golden streets, all of them singing their Redeemer's praise, all of them chanting the name of Jehovah and the Lamb. And this was a part of the answer to his question. Knowing the agony that the Son of God suffered on the cross, should affect how you and I see sin. Spurgeon said this, Friends, if I had a dear brother who had been murdered, what would you think of me if I valued the knife which had been crimsoned with his blood? If I made a friend of the murderer and daily consorted with the assassin who drove the dagger into my brother's heart, surely I too must be an accomplice in the crime. Sin murdered Christ. Will you be a friend to it? Sin pierced the heart of the incarnate God. Can you love it? There's a lot of great observations from Spurgeon about these uh, passages. So then Jesus cries out on the cross, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. And the people around him mistake him for calling out the name of Elijah. Um, they didn't understand what he was saying. Um, now, that in a way is like a lot of people today, they don't hear the words of Jesus properly. They don't hear what he said. They misquote Jesus all the time. Um, but we should understand that the word of God represents all the words that proceed from the mouth of God. And if we are true followers of Jesus, we will listen to every word that Jesus says. Jesus was misunderstood from the time he was a child. He was misunderstood by his own parents. When they couldn't find him, he was in the temple. They didn't understand why. He says, I'm about my father's business. Uh, here he is at the end of his earthly ministry and he's misunderstood on the cross. Guzik says, Jesus knew what it was to have his motives misunderstood. He healed people. Another said he did it by the devil. He reached out to sinners and people called him a drunken pig. The followers of Jesus also sometimes have their motives misunderstood. That will happen to you and I as followers of Jesus. Jesus knew what it was to have his words misunderstood. Uh, when he said, destroy this temple in three days and I'll rebuild it, he was talking about his own body being destroyed and he would be rebuild it. But people insisted that he was talking about destroying the literal temple. Um, see, the followers of Jesus will have our words misunderstood. That's why sometimes, you know, you say things and you know it to be true per the Bible, you know it to be true from your own conviction of the Holy Spirit, and people misunderstand what you say. But Jesus, more than having his words misunderstood, he knew what it was to have his silence misunderstood. See, when he first appeared in front of Pilate, uh, who then sends him off to Herod, it was his silence that was misunderstood. Uh, 
Herod misunderstood the silence of Jesus and saw it as a weakness, powerlessness. And he was blind to the true power of Jesus. And the followers of Jesus sometimes have their silence misunderstood because people are blind to the power of Jesus. So when I start looking at my observations for today, there's so much to observe. Um, uh, that moment, the moment, the moment when when all my sin actually is transferred onto Jesus and he is immediately separated from that feeling, from his that fellowship with his father, that moment, what an amazing moment uh, in world history, pivotal moment in world history. That's when it was, that's when he, he'd achieved it. And then my other observation is silence. Uh, sometimes it's more powerful than words. Uh, right now we're going through a time in history where, you know, there's various slogans that are, that are said about injustice in this world and our response to injustices. And one of the things that is said about, uh, not saying anything about injustices in the world is silence is violence. Yet to Jesus, silence was all about a determination to show love. Silence was about standing up for what was right. Um, sometimes, sometimes our silence stands up for what is right. There are times when we must have a voice for the injustices of, the, uh, injustices of this world that we see, no doubt about that. We must stand up with our voice and our actions. Um, but Jesus knew the power of silence when he was being accused. When somebody was leveling something at him, he knew that silence was more powerful than any defense he could come up with. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Thank you for giving your son. Whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Thank you. Thank you, God the Father, for giving your son. Thank you, God the Son, Jesus, for taking my sin and the pain of my sin upon yourself so that I could have a relationship with God the Father and so I could have access to God the Holy Spirit as the veil was torn in two, in Jesus' name. Thank you so much for listening. For more content, please don't forget to check out my YouTube channel, Anthony P. Richards. Have a great day.